I think the nuns are the most important group in America today because they're growing rapidly. They were, you know, they were 5% of the population in 1990. Now they're 23%. Actually, some estimates put them up closer to 30% now. I think actually it's probably high 20s is the right answer. So it's 25, 30%. And Generation Z, 40, over 40% of Generation Z has no religious affiliation. So I think the reality is that a third of Americans are going to be nuns in the next 20 years. And it might go up to 40% at some point. You, we have to understand what that means for American society. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective a podcast of Word & Way. I'm your host, Word & Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word & Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, Visit cbf.net slash seminary dash resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Ryan Burge. He's an assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. And he's also the pastor at First Baptist Church of Mount Vernon, Illinois. He'll be talking about both of those roles a bit in this episode. And in particular, he's going to help us unpack some of what happened on Election Day. Of what can we know from the polls, from the numbers, from the exit polling data about how different types of religious groups voted and why it matters. And so what Ryan does in his research as well as in his public scholarship and doing interviews like this is to help us unpack what does the data say in the worlds of religion and politics and particularly where those two worlds intersect. And so I was really excited to have Ryan on the program I've enjoyed reading his work, I follow him on Twitter, and just the insights that he brings to help us understand from a, from a data-driven perspective of what's happening and what does it mean, I think is really helpful. And I, I hope that you'll find this conversation to be very interesting and informative as well. So here's my interview with Ryan Burge of Eastern Illinois University. Well, Ryan, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. So I'm going to set the stage. This is this is re releasing for people to listen to a little over a week after Election Day, but we are talking. It's Friday afternoon, four days after Election Day. We don't officially know yet who has won, although it seems like we're probably on the verge of of everyone calling it for former Vice President Joe Biden. But yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're in, so maybe by the time people are listening to this episode, things are a little bit more settled. But we're going to talk a little bit about, about some of the election stuff and some of the things that have been happening. But first, I want to kind of introduce who you are and a little bit of, of your work. And so you wear a couple of different hats that I thought would be interesting to talk about. And you are an assistant professor of political science. Correct. At Eastern Illinois University. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your role and background as a political science researcher. Yeah, so I have a undergraduate degree in history and political science from Greenville College, which is Greenville University now, but the same place, they just changed the name. 
And then when I graduated there with a bachelor's degree, I went into the world of work for a year and I was like, this is awful. I don't like working. <laughs> like, I don't like, I don't like being a working person. And so, um, I always, I, I miss, I miss being in the educational environment. Like I just miss that dialogue. I miss the rhythm of the year and I just miss the students and everything about it. So I thought, you know what, I need to at least get some more education somehow. So I actually had no idea what I was doing applying to graduate school, looking back on it now. Like I didn't have any, any guidance at all, which put me really in a disadvantaged position. I realized a lot later. So I just applied for a couple of small, you know, a couple of programs close to me. And I actually applied to SIU Carbondale in June to start classes in August, which is a really dumb idea because, you know, the, your assistantships have already been taken up like months ahead of time. So I actually, I paid my first year paid tuition, which I would never recommend anyone doing because that's just a terrible idea. But I wanted to just get a master's degree and just be done, you know, and like go do work for government or, or do whatever. And um, so I went there for two years and I wrote a thesis. And I really, when I, when I wrote that very first, you know, research paper, that thesis, I was like, wow, I'm getting this. Like, this is making sense to me. And my, my thesis advisor said to me, hey, you're good at this. Do you want to stick around and um, get a PhD? And they'd already started funding me at that point. So like that made it a lot easier because I really just felt like I wanted to continue on. It was starting to make sense to me. I was really starting to hit my stride. And so I, I went there for three more years and graduated with a PhD in 2011. I did a postdoc for a year at the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute, which is um, uh, like on, at the campus of SIU. And then I started teaching at Eastern Illinois in 2012 and have been there basically since then. I was an instructor for about six years. And in the last two years, I'm an assistant professor on the tenure track and I'm also the graduate coordinator. So I run our master's program we have there. Very good. Well, that's, that's a funny story hearing you say that because, so my route was through graduate school was very similar. I, at the very last minute, too late to apply, decided to go for a master's in political communication instead of seminary. And so I did, I was actually even a non-degree seeking student officially my first year at University of Missouri. And then officially in the master's, got funded, enjoyed my advisor, and so stayed all the way through for my for my doctorate. So yeah, I kind of backed into it as well. So that's kind of interesting to hear you have that kind of similar journey and finding our, our place. Yeah, I also feel like such a big hypocrite, though, because I tell all my students, don't go to a PhD program unless they give you full funding for, you know, X number of years. And yet I'm the guy who kind of, you know, did it the wrong way, but it turned out right. I mean, you know, you kind of look back at your life and realize that it doesn't, you know, at the time it made sense, but looking back on it, it was really dumb. Like a lot of things that you did, but it got you to where you are today. And, and that's kind of where I am. Like I'm constantly amazed. If you would have told me 10 years ago, this is what I'd be doing. I'd just be completely just mind blown by that. And, you know, I, I'm really happy what I'm doing right now. And I feel very fulfilled in my career, but I just never thought when I was 18 that this is what I'd be doing when I'm 38 years old. So, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And, and here I am right now. So it's, it's worked out well for me. Yeah, of course. So a lot of the your work that you do, your research is kind of the intersection of, of political science and religion. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, about some of your research and some of your interests that you enjoy exploring. So um, I have the most bizarre schizophrenic research agenda ever because it's just religion and politics more like more generally specified. I know a lot of my friends have like a very like defined path. Like I'm going to write about this very specific niche area. I'm just like way too like my attention span so bad that I can't operate that way. So it's like I see like a shiny object. And I'm like, let's go do that. And let's write a paper about that. or Let's do a blog post or a tweet about that. Actually, for a lot of times it starts with a tweet and then that turns into a conversation and that conversation turns into an article. Like I've written a couple articles now with people I've never met in real life before that we just had a conversation on Twitter and they were like, you want to write? And I'm like, yeah, let's write. So we write together. 
so I really just, I, 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 I've done, I've published in the last couple of years, I've published everything from like analyzing how members of Congress use religious language on Twitter to track, you know, measuring religiously dis- disaffiliated people in America. I published on religion and tolerance, how religion impacts your political tolerance. I published three or four papers on the emergent church movement, which was sort of this big movement 20 years ago in American evangelicalism that sort of died off. But now I've got papers out there about the environment, uh, about how old people participate in the political process. All oh, um, about religious liberty and how people view religious liberty. Like I've, I just got a thousand things going on right now, and I love it because, like I said, I've, I'm like a goldfish. Like I get, a, I have a very short attention span, so I just want to get an idea, get it out of my system, and then work on the next idea. So it's not as coherent as just the broad umbrella of um, American religion and politics. Almost everything I do sort of falls under that umbrella. Yeah, and of course, you know, one of the things also that you've been doing a lot recently as well is is not just writing the academic studies but also you know helping to communicate some of these findings to like you're doing on this podcast with us and a number of other publications and so you know that's i think a, a really important part i want to talk a little bit about how about that side of your work because i know sometimes you're like you know tenure committees don't always look at that as you know worthwhile time it's you know not peer reviewed but it's really important work of helping the lay audience and the general public to understand what we are learning about these important areas. Yeah, I've, I've never considered myself to be a traditional academic, to be completely honest with you. Like, I just don't think the way that other academics think. I I honestly think that most academics, that, that the world they live in is the world, they write for other people in their world, like in their subfield. And I do that. Like, I can do that, but I don't love doing that because it's, you know, you write a piece, let's say you publish it in a journal article, you know, in a journal, you might get a hundred reads a year if you're lucky. And, and many journal articles are never read at all. So like I've had pieces, I've written pieces for our website that have been read 15 or 20,000 times. You know, we're going to get 165,000 hits on our website this year. So like one piece I write can get, you know, literally hundreds of more impressions than anything I ever write for a journal. But I do understand the give and take, right? Which is that to be credible in both worlds, you have to publish in both worlds. So I'm still publishing on the academic side. Luckily, I'm at an institution that doesn't place a real high premium on publisher parish, right? So I already, I published four or five articles last year. I'm going to, I'm probably going to get close to 10 this year. I have a book coming out next year. Like that would get me tenure in almost every place. And in, in, in my place, I only need one of those things. I'm going to have like 15 in the first three years. So what that's done though, for me has been really nice because I can check that box and so then I can spend my time doing what I want to do and what I love to do and what I think I'm good at, as opposed to trying to fit into the mold of academia. And I think that both of those have been symbiotically related to each other. The more public scholarship I do, the more academic work I want to do and back and forth and back and forth. And I think that's really like, that's the way that things should work, you know, that we should be more public facing and that if we, if what we do, the average person doesn't read it, then what's the point? Like, it just doesn't matter. So everything I do now in my head is like, okay, that could be a journal article, but can I make that into a blog post? And if I can't make it into a blog post, then I don't want to do it because I think that's that really should guide our work. You know, I, I love my, my academic friends, my political science friends, but sometimes I sit through seminar meetings and I go, what in the world are they talking about? Like, who cares about com- subcommittee assignments in the Kansas legislature? Like, no one does. Like, get figure out a better question you know like we're political science this is not some esoteric odd field pick something fun and that's what i love about my work is i stay i I say i study american religion and politics and no one goes huh but they're automatically interested like the default is i'm interested make me more interested not convince me why i should care they already kind of care so 
you know, that's always what I've wanted to be. I've wanted to be a public academic and I've, I'm kind of living my dream right now, which is amazing. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's one of the things I appreciate about your work is the fact that you do have this, this public facing side. I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm at Word and Way instead of just teaching at a university like I did for several years was I wanted to do more of this writing that people are actually reading and that is more of that, that, that public work. But yeah, I, I love this idea of, you know, they say that you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics at the you know polite dinner t- talk, and yet you know everybody's interested in it. It drives my wife nuts when people say, "Oh, well, what do you?" When, especially when I was still teaching, like, "What do you, what do you study?" I was like, "Oh, I do religion and politics," and they would always say, "Oh, that's interesting," and my wife's always like, "Don't encourage him." Now he's going to talk about it. Like people are interested in this stuff, and they want to know what's happening. I mean, we're seeing that this week. People are talking. People are interested. They want to know like what's happening. Why did this happen? So there's, I think there's like two levels of what's going on right now. Like there's a, there's a low level of, there's like a weird subculture on the internet of people who are always interested, right? Like there's, and it's not small ish. Like, I mean, there's, it's in the hundreds of thousands of people, right? Which is a a big market and they're always going to be interested in what I do. It's just when you get into an election season, it just like goes into overdrive. And I think all, all the journalists are like, I need to write a story about religion. Let's Google around. Like who's doing this work. And like, I guess my name pops up a bunch anymore. So like, let's call this guy. You know, which is, it's fun, but then I really don't like talking to journalists who never cover religion except for like one story a year because they just don't get it, mm-hmm. right? Like they don't get the nuances of what these different groups are, the backs. If I talk about Paula White, like, listen, you and I know who that is, and we know that she's not really an evangelical like other evangelicals are. Amen. But, yeah, but you know what I mean? <laughs> but like to explain that to someone who doesn't, who's not inside evangelicalism, doesn't understand the distinction between Pentecostals and your more S- Southern Baptist traditional evangelicals, right? So like, that's what becomes hard for my job is to try to get, I get a 10 minute interview to try to make sense of religion to them and not mess up a quote right? So that they write a story that makes sense and doesn't misquote me and doesn't misrepresent me and doesn't misrepresent the topic at the same time. So it's really like this hard balancing back to like trying to be a teacher and interesting and and informative all in, you know, a 10 or 15 minute interview. I really like talking to the religion reporters though, because they're like a small group of people. There's only like 25 or 30 in America who really write about religion nonstop. And they all know me and I know them at this point. So like we're, we're talking the same language. Like I don't have to get them up to speed. They have to get me up to speed sometimes. So I think there's a huge advantage to that too. I like both. I like the little bumps we're getting right now, but I really do like the long-term relationships I've built inside the subfield in academia, but also with these reporters I talk to on a regular basis. Yeah. And I, I want to talk a little bit about some of that and unpack the election a little bit, you know, but before we get there, I do also want to note that you're also a pastor of the American Baptist Church, American Baptist Churches USA affiliated congregation. And so you're, you're not just the academic and you're not just talking to journalists. You're, you're also coming to all of this with that perspective as well. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your role as a pastor and and how all that came to be as well. Sure. So um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in that white evangelical subculture in the 90s with purity culture and abortion and all this stuff, religious rights stuff. I think actually the big reason I do what I do right now is trying to make sense of what happened to me then. Right. To try to understand like how weird that was, because <laughs> when you're a kid, you don't know what weird is because you don't know anything else but your thing. Right. So a lot of what I do is trying to figure that out. So I went to uh, we talk about Greenville College, which is a free Methodist school, which is more like a mainline, you know, less evangelical, but still very Christian. Right. Just in a different way. And that sort of opened my eyes to uh, a different type of faith, you know, a faith that was less dogmatic, a little bit more inclusive and intolerant. And, and I thought, well, that's that's interesting. I kind of like that. And then really what made the turn for me more real was I was in, I was actually a ministry minor. I had a religion minor in um, college and I was taking a youth ministry class 
with a professor who was a pastor at a town that was about 20 miles from where I grew up. And he was at a pastor's meeting, and one of the other pastors said, we're looking for a youth intern for summer, a three-month summer intern. Do you know anybody? He goes, well, I can float the idea in my class and see if I get anybody. Well, it came come to find out it was First Baptist Church of Centralia, Illinois, which was an American Baptist church, which I did not know what that meant at the time. But I was like, let's give it a shot because I needed a job, to be completely honest with you. And I knew I was pretty good at doing the ministry stuff when I was in youth group. So I applied. I got you know interviewed. I got the job. And in three months, turned into three years. So I was a youth pastor there at First Baptist for three years from uh, 20 to 23 years old, basically. And, um, and then when I quit doing that, I quit doing that to go to grad school. And my first year in grad school, while I was paying my own way, I was a pastor of a little small church in Marion, Illinois called Warder Street Baptist Church, which actually doesn't even exist anymore. It got torn down two years ago of a bunch of people who were literally 75 years and older. I was 23 and they were 75. I pastored that church for a year and then I quit because I was going to be an assistant. I got a graduate assistantship at SIU at that point. So I wanted to kind of devote myself full time, but knew money was going to be a stretch. So I was always interested in pulpit supply. Well, First Baptist Church of Mount Vernon called me to do pulpit supply in September. And they called me back to do it the next Sunday. And then they called me back and said, do you want to be the interim pastor? So um, that interim pastor now, I have just celebrated my 14th year at First Baptist Church of Mount Vernon, Illinois as their pastor. It's a small congregation of about... And when I got here, it was about 50 people. Now it's about 20 or 25 people, all again over the age of 75. And we really have a great relationship. They've seen me through every stage of my life. Um, when I was I was 23 years old when I started there, I had not even gotten, a, I only had a bachelor's degree. So I got a master's degree. I got married. Um, I bought a house, renovated the house, got a PhD, had two kids, got a job. And they've been with me the whole, the whole stretch. I, I always joke that my kids have like six or seven sets of grandparents. Because every time they come to church, they got candies and hugs and, you know, all the nice things. So it's been a really, really good relationship. And I think it works well for what I do academically because it's not just dry academics, right? It's actually, it's a lived experience for me. And, and, and being in both worlds helps me see both worlds and put one hat on or the other, depending on what situation that I'm in. So it's really been, it's really just benefited me in, in innumerable ways. This, of course, has been a, an unusual year with coronavirus, and I'm sure that has impacted both of your jobs with virtual, I assume you had to go virtual teaching and probably also disrupted worship services. So I wonder what that, what has that been like for you personally, as you've kind of had to deal with this year that we have found ourselves in? It's been, so my congregation's older people, which means that our, you know, our concern level is high. It's, it's higher for me. I feel like I have to protect my people. You know, like that's a big, I feel very, shepherding in this role. And so we were very slow to come back. Um, we, I think we spent three and a half months not meeting at all, not doing virtual either because my people are old and don't know how to do that. It would just be a waste of time to be honest with you. So we, we have, we've come back and now we're sort of in the mode of, wow, things are getting way worse for everybody. The number of cases of Corona nationwide has gone up 50% in the last week. Um, we're seeing just exploding numbers everywhere. So now we're having a conversation about whether we should, you know, suspend services again for a while. Because if it goes through our, if it goes through our congregation, we're going to lose somebody. Like I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that's going to happen. Just looking at the numbers, if the death rate's 10 or 15 percent of people over the age of 75, if everybody in my congregation gets it, we're going to have one person die, just statistically. So I mean, when I went back to class, I still teach in person. Right. And so when I still teach in person, I had, I told my students, I go, listen, if you are sick and you come to my class, you're going to kill a little old lady in my church. And that is not okay. 
You know, if you cough twice, if you sneeze, if you have a headache, if you have a fever, if you just don't feel well, please don't come to class because you're putting, you're not just putting your life at risk, you're putting my life at risk and you're putting these people's lives at risk. And you know what? I've had several students email me and say, I'm not going to come because I want to make sure that the old ladies at church are safe. And I thought, well, that that's great. You know what I mean? Like that to me, that makes me feel good about my students that they're outside themselves, right? They're seeing the bigger picture of the world and realizing their choices affect people they don't know. And so that's been really good. I will say it's been, I mean, it's been difficult. It's been difficult for everybody because my congregation is full of old people who are lonely. And I want to, you know, I want to have those conversations with them and I want to, you know, hug and, and handshake and do all the things I used to do. We distance, we mask, you know, we were very careful, but it's still, we can't be a hundred percent careful. It's just been a, it's been a dark season, you know, for everybody involved. Um, and I think we'll all be better off when this is over, <laughs> you know, hopefully in the next six months we can get back to normal. Yeah. Well, it does give me hope though, that you're, you know, helping uh, teach this next generation to basic love thy neighbor ethic that seems to be lacking in a lot of our, our political debates about coronavirus and masks and all of that. Yeah. And that's, I'm just very clear with them. I go, I don't care if you don't believe in masks, the data says that masks work, you know, and, and, and we're not going to fight about that here. You know, your, your opinion can be your opinion, but if it's not based on facts, then just you don't have an opinion. You're just making stuff up, you know? So I say like, listen, plus we have rules. Like on campus, we have rules about things, right? About you have to wear a mask. And if you don't, you can't be in class. So it's just easy to enforce those rules. But I also like to like, I like to try to get them to think about other things, right? Like the bigger picture. I don't ever preach. I'm never proselytized in the classroom. I mentioned the pastor thing once at the beginning of class and then never again. If students want to talk about it, they bring it up with me. Like I'm very clear about like, I'm not going to evangelize you. That's not what my job is. My job is to show you that I'm a good professor, a good person, a good friend, a good mentor, but, and then seeing the reason I'm doing that. And then maybe you can say, wow, like Dr. Burge is a cool dude and he's a Christian and he treats me well and with mercy and grace and compassion. I like that, you know, and then they'll figure out why, right? Like it'll make sense to them, but I'm not going to say I'm doing this because Jesus would do this. Like, that's not my mentality at all. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And I think it's the right thing to do because I think this is what the kingdom of God's about. And if my, my presence in this world makes their world a little bit better, I hope they understand why. I'm making their world a little bit better. So that's that's sort of how I approach like those two things. I'm very clear about keeping this separate from that. I mean, I do not want to be an uh, evangelizing, you know, professor. That's the last thing I want to do. Well, let's talk about the election. And, you know, the the question that I'm sure people are wondering is also the question that I'm sure that you're tired of. So, how do I evangelicals do? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. So here we go. Um, this is, I literally answered this question like 12 times in the last 24 hours. I, I know you have. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the long and the short of it is nothing changed. I mean, that like that's really what happened. If you look back, I mean, I can look back at really good data back to 2008 at least. So 8, 12, 6, 8, 12 16, and now we have exits from 20, but they're not great yet. The reality is white evangelicals were 78% all the way down all the way back to Obama, McCain back in 2008. There's no data. I see nothing conclusive in the data that says they've moved any significant way at the national level. I have seen some stuff that maybe said they shifted a little bit in the state of Michigan. Like I saw an exit poll that said they were only 70% for Trump when they were 80% for Trump four years ago. But A, that's a state level poll and B, it's an exit poll. So like there's two things there that give me a lot of pause about what that number really means. So I think the reality is overall, even white evangelical Protestants are just as Republican today as they were, you know, 12, 14 years ago. And that Trump did nothing to make that better or make that worse over the last four years, which tells you a lot, I think. Right. We had pandemic. We had corruption. We had impeachment. We had all the things that happened and nothing changed, which tells you that that block. And I tweeted about this today and got a lot of guff about it. I said, Democrats, stop it. 
Stop with that. We're going to win back white evangelicals. It's a waste of your time. Okay. If anything else, this election should prove that there's all these organizations every year that like crop up with like $5 million in PR tours. You are just ingratiating yourself. There is no evidence that it's helping you at the national level win back any white evangelicals. And you can be spending that money in better spots that you're not doing right now. So that's my rant. Yeah, I saw I saw some of the Twitter. That's why I had to ask you that question because I, I knew I, I knew you were getting some pushback. And, and but yeah, so you know it is it is fascinating how much fascinating and also frustrating how much over attention that particularly from not you, know, you talk about you know different types of reporters, non religion reporters that are suddenly talking about religion and election to them religion is conservative white evangelicals like that's the whole topic. And, and so this has been, you know, an area that has received an overemphasis and yet also it's something that's not changing at all. Yeah, that's the, I mean, how do you keep writing the same story over and over again? <laughs> like that's, that's a true. challenge for reporters is how do you, and they keep writing them. God love them. Yeah. I mean, they, every, every, year, every four years, uh, maybe the white evangelicals will flip this year. And then afterwards, yes. no, they didn't. This is Lucy with line with, uh, with, uh, Charlie Brown, the football every four years, boy, we're going to write a whole raft of stories about this is the year. This is the election. Joe Biden's a moderate Trump's, you know, whatever Trump is, they're going to shift and nothing happens. Like I think, but listen, I get why they write the stories, right? Cause 13% of adult Americans are white evangelical Republicans. It's the largest religious voting bloc in America today. There are twice as many white evangelical Republicans as there are white Catholic Democrats or white Catholic Republicans because they're evenly split. So, you know, if you're going to write about the Republicans, you got to write about white evangelicals. Like they are the literally the core, the guts of the Republican Party today is white evangelicals. You know how you become the core? 78% vote for the Republican every time. Right. Like, so it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. And I think, listen, I get the fascination because people who live in New York City are like these evangelicals. I don't really understand them because they've never they're never around evangelicals. Right. They don't they're in a bubble. I hate to say it, but like the media who live in the the Excella corridor there don't understand evangelicals in the Midwest at all because most of them have never even lived in the Midwest. Right. But that's where the work's being done. And I think that's if I can do anything for these reporters is try to give them a peek inside, you know, the back rooms of like evangelicals and what it really looks like. And I, what drives me nuts is that editors will give journalists stories saying, you're going to write a story about how young evangelicals are not as conservative. And they're like, okay, let's do it. And they'll go out and they'll find like a church in Philadelphia, mm, racially diverse, more progressive. I'm like, go down to Alabama. Go look at a town of 7,000 people and go to their youth group and see how liberal, look how many Trump voters you got there because there's going to be all of them, right? So I, I think that the media tries to spin the narrative, tries to create a new narrative because the old narrative is boring and, and over overly done, but you can't make something out of nothing. And the data every year kind of smacks you in the face and goes, nope, it's going to be the same. So 78%, guess what? In 2024, it's going to be 78% again, I guarantee it, so... Yeah, because I think you said something really important. I mean, like if if this year didn't change, like if Trump didn't increase it and Trump didn't decrease it, like we went through a pandemic, we've gone through, you know, the impeachment, the racial protests, not to mention all the, you know, the character issues, which, you know, we both grew up in that same, you know, 1990s evangelical culture where character mattered. And now if you say character matters, you're a liberal. And I, that's still my, the teenage version of me is really confused by that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I completely get, you know, like, you know, I probably, I have the same issue. A lot of what I am doing today is, you know, also trying to make sense of that white evangelical culture that I grew up in. And you're right, particularly if you go out into, you know, rural Illinois, where you are, rural Missouri, where I am, that, you know, you, nothing's going to change. And if, 
if it didn't change with Trump, this this block is baked in. So here's my anecdote that I tell everybody right now. My my home county, Marion County, Illinois, about 35,000 people. I grew up in a town of 8,000 people. In 2000, my first election I could vote in, it was Bush-Gore. Bush got 51, Gore got 48. Very close. You know, we're a 50-50 county, basically. Trump won in 2020 by 35 points. And the county board is 15 seats. It is now 15 Republicans and zero Democrats. I mean, it is the shot. I mean, the shift that's happened in the last two decades in rural America away from the Democratic Party has just been staggering. And I think it's part of religion's part of the story, right? But I also think it's just simple demography because all my friends, most of my friends who went to college, when they graduated, they never came back. You know, they moved to Nashville or Chicago or St. Louis or Indianapolis or the coast or somewhere else. And the people who, who, who stayed were the people who did not get an education by and large because there's no jobs for college educated people in small town America, except here's what I always tell people. If you want to get a, a, a career, go to college, get a career back in a small town, you can only do a couple things. Teacher, nurse, police officer, firefighter. That's about the end of the list. Because there are no there are no tech jobs in rural America, right? There are no other white. And what's funny about those four jobs, by the way, is okay, um, teacher, government, right? Firefighter, government, police officer, government, and then nurse, which I guarantee you a huge part of your salary is paid by Medicare or Medicaid, which is the government, right? So the government is basically keeping rural America alive right now because it's not factories. So that's what's happening is that rural America is becoming smaller. And it's getting less educated or the education level is not keeping up with the national average. So it's falling behind and it's getting redder and redder every day. And it's getting more resentful too, because the jobs they used to have are gone and are never coming back. So I think that's, that's part of it, right? When Obama said they cling to their guns and their religion, he's kind of saying like they have to cling to something because everything else is fading. And that's exactly what's happening in small towns is, and listen, Trump was great at that. Make America great again is trying to go back to the seventies when you could go to high school, graduate, go work in a factory, get a middle-class job, one income. You could go on vacation twice a year. You could buy a new car every five years and you could live a good life. Guess what? Can't do that anymore. That's not life anymore. People want to go back to that, but you want to go back to that, which does not exist. It will not come back. And I think that's really what the tr the Trump vote for a lot of people was a nostalgia vote. It was a vote for what was what we were 50 years ago, not what we're going to be 50 years from now. And I think that's really what Trump was good at, playing into that whole idea of let's go back to when we were in power too, white Christians. So, I know that you're still processing it, and the data isn't complete yet on this election that just happened. But uh, as you look at it, what's... So I asked the question that I felt like is the one everyone's talking about that, I, you know, and, and that I knew that you would would give us a good rant on. And, <laughs> and I appreciated that. <laughs> but what would be the what do you think is the most important in the data? What's the most important religion story that we should be talking about? Because it's not the white evangelical vote because nothing happened there. But what's the most important story that is there? Yeah. So the, the key story to me is the white Catholic vote. I think that's absolutely completely the the, the center of the universe right now. I think that so Biden. Biden needed to win the win the Rust Belt. Okay, he needed to win Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. That was really the whole election. Everything else is sort of like just icing on the cake. Okay, he didn't need to win Arizona. You know, Georgia's interesting, but not was never on the radar. Texas, Ohio, blah, Florida, whatever. Right. He needed to win the Rust Belt, and the Rust Belt is uh, a lot of blue collar, white, you know, lower levels of education folks, especially in the rural areas. Those are the kind of people that Obama won in twelve and Clinton lost in sixteen. He had to win those people back. I think that he was the ideal candidate to do that because the dude's a white Catholic, right? And he, you know, I think he's authentically Catholic. He's not just like pasting it on there, pandering, right? 
But here's the thing. In 2016, Donald Trump won 59% of the white Catholic vote in the two-party vote, and Clinton got 41%. By the way, third parties were really not an issue this time like they were four years ago. So the two-party vote's better, a better comparison because it takes out all the noise. So 59-41. But listen, this time, 52-48. And I've actually seen some polls say 50-50, that Biden cut off eight points off that white Catholic lead. Okay. And that was enough. Think about it. So if Michigan is 20% Catholic and you, you knock eight points off of that, you're talking a one and a half points vote overall in the state. And guess what? Every one of those states is going to be within one and a half points. I think if you throw white mainline Protestants on top of that, I haven't seen any data on this, but I have a feeling they shifted left a little bit too. That might not be another point, point and a half. So now you're two to three points the other way, which is enough to win in a state where you lost by, by the way, 77,000 votes is what Trump won by in 2016 in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania combined. Guess what? 3% switches everything. Now it goes from a Trump win to a Trump loss. And I think it's largely because of non-evangelical white Christians in those Rust Belt states. Yeah. So you said that perhaps Biden was the perfect candidate in that regard. All right. A, a white Catholic from Pennsylvania was able to, to move enough of the white Catholic vote in those, those three key states. That's, yeah. I think that's a really important point. It is. And I think the other story, though, is, and, and this is like, I don't even know how to parse this yet, is the Hispanic defection from the Democratic Party. I mean, so I'll give you just three little like canaries in the coal mine that make me go, whoa. So um, Miami-Dade County, Clinton won by 29 points four years ago. Biden won by nine points this time. So 20-point swing. And probably costing Florida completely. Yes. Well, so you got to run up the score in places like that because you're going to lose the panhandle. Like you're going to lose up. Florida's a weird state because the further the further south you go, the further north it becomes, right? In terms of politics, like the northern part of Florida is like is is basically like Alabama, and so you got to run up the score in South Florida with all the Hispanics, right? So that way you can have a lead going into the to the western part of the state. So uh, Miami Dade lost; he only won by nine, so he lost twenty points there. Doral County, Clinton won by forty in 2016. Biden lost it by five. So 45-point swing in Doral County, Florida. The other one, this is a really weird one, Star County, Texas, on the Rio Grande Valley, right on the border of Texas, Mexico. It's a very small county, 20,000 voters this time around. Clinton won it by 50 four years ago. Biden won it by five points this time. So like those are three little stories, I think, that are telling a bigger story about how Hispanics just totally... I mean, huge numbers abandoned the Democratic Party over the last four years and went to Trump. And I mean, like I was, it's like an autopsy. Like we're trying to figure out like what happened. I don't even know. Like, is it a religious story? I mean, is it about Hispanic evangelicals, Hispanic Catholics, or is it more about, you know, identity politics? Is it about immigration? I don't really, or is it about Biden? Do they not like Biden for some reason? They like Clinton. They don't like Biden. I don't really know yet, but I think that's the story I'm going to be unpacking in the future is trying to figure out what in the world happened to Hispanics in the last four years. And do the Democrats have really to worry going forward? Cause that's a key core constituency for them. And if they lose that constituency, they got to find somebody else. And I don't think they're equipped to do that. So those are like my big stories coming out of 2020. Yeah, very good. That's helpful. Yeah, and I, th I think that 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 Hispanic story is going to be an interesting one to pack out to see if it's a one out one off or and also if there is a religious angle to it, because you know I, one of the things that I think also gets lost a lot in the conversations about white evangelicals is that a lot of these religious trends that we see seem to be more related to issues of race. You know, that there's a lot of other things that are happening as well. Uh, that's one of the most frustrating for me is the exit polls always ask about white evangelicals. And we get white Catholics, we get non-white Catholics, 
evangelicals, we get white evangelicals. And in the general election, we don't, that's like the non-white evangelicals don't exist, right? We sometimes get those in some of the primary exit polls in the past, but, you know, and, and so, you know, if you were to do all evangelicals, it would, it would change that evangelical vote a little bit because black evangelicals are, you know, heavily democratic, just like white evangelicals are heavily Republican. And so there are, there are a lot of other factors that are going on. And that's what I have to be really clear when people like ask me, like, what, are, what, are, what were evangelicals in 26? And I go, is it all evangelicals, white evangelicals, non-white? I mean, if you, if you do all evangelicals, it was 66% for Trump. If you do white evangelicals, it's 78%, right? So that shows you there was a lot of, um, there was a lot more vote splitting amongst non-white evangelicals. I do think it's an issue of sample size. Like I always like try to, I try to like talk people through like why, I get all these people on Twitter like, why can't you tell me about like what Eskimos did? Or like, what did Muslims do in Michigan? I'm like, do you realize how polling works? Like, it's not free, first off. And secondly, you need to sample size. Like, if you wanted to figure out like what, what Muslims did in Michigan in 2020, they're 3% of the population, right? So that means if you get 1,000 responses, you're going to get 30 Muslims. You're going to need at least 10 times that to get a sample that you want. So you're going to have to sample 10,000 people, which means you're going to have to call probably 70 to 80,000 people to get a 300-person Muslim sample from the state of Michigan. And that's going to cost you about ooh, $150,000, $200,000. Do you really care? Because you just want a line from me. You know what I mean? So like, they don't understand like what goes into – all they want to see is the flashy, shiny graphs on Twitter. Like they don't understand like all the sausage that's behind those graphs. Like it's so much like when we're only, we're only now getting into the world of big survey data. Like when I was coming up a long time ago, 10 years ago, the only data you had was the American national election study and the general social survey. Those were really like your only two big surveys anybody used. And the GSS is done every two years. This total sample is between 2,500 and 3,000 people, which is great. Except if you're going to look at Mormons. And then you got 40 Mormons and you can't do anything with 40 Mormons, right? So now what's made my what's made my career in a lot of ways is we are now in the era of huge data. So the two the two big things I use now are one's called the Cooperative Congressional Election Study, which has been done beginning in 2008. It's been done every other year. And then the last couple of years, it was done 2017, 2018, and 2019. And they're doing it in 2022. The 2016 sample had 65,000. The 2018 sample had 60,000. The 2020 sample has 72,000 respondents. You can do a lot with 72,000 people because now you can look at Mormons because they're 1% of the population. I've got 800 Mormons to look at, not 40. So now my margins get nicer and I can actually present data with a lot more surety about what the means and the sample confidence intervals, things like that are. The other one is called the Nationscape. It's been done every week now, beginning in July of 2019, all the way through December of 2020. The total sample size right now is 306,000 respondents. It's going to be close to half a million respondents at the end of the whole C oh, the whole collection cycle. 500,000 respondents is, I mean, like that's bigger than the GSS and the NES put together from the beginning. And that's in 18 months. So now I can cut, 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 right? I can look at Mormon women and have a decent sample size. Never could do that before, right? And I can look at individual denominations in the CCS. So I can look at the American Baptists and have 400 of them. You could never do that 10 years ago. So, but you got to realize like these surveys cost, not joking, millions of dollars. And they're getting grant funding, which I'm totally stoked about because it's making, it's helping me help you understand the world. Because we would never be able to do this on our own. So people have to understand the reason that no one's done this before is because it was literally impossible to do until about five or 10 years ago. I just got lucky that the data hit at the right time and my skill set was at the, in, in the right place. And I had the desire to learn how to do this stuff. 
And I wanted to communicate that to the public. So when I hear questions about like, why don't we hear enough about this group or that group or the other group? I almost want to say it's because of sample size. Like that's, it's not because we have a bias against mainline Protestants or Mormons or Muslims or whatever. It's just, there's not a lot of those groups out there. We can really only do white, you know, white evangelicals, white Catholics, the nuns. That's really all we can do out of a thousand person sample and still have a decent margin. So a big winding methods answer to your question. Oh no, but that's great. Cause you're right. You're raising something. I think it's, a conversation right now and you're you gave us a little bit of a peek behind you know the curtain or, or how the sausage is made because there's a lot of questions about polling right like so you know like is polling dead what's wrong with polling right and, and, and it's probably too soon to really to do to do the 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 post op because i think in some ways we might find that the polls after all the votes are counted may not you know we don't know how we don't actually know yet how how far off the polls were we're not but but what's your take like what's can we trust polls and and or I know that that's a very broad question because we can trust some and not others. But yeah. what what can you give us as a, a lay for for those of us who don't who don't do polling like you do? Read the data. What what can we take from all of this polling? I think I would reiterate what you just said, which is that it's looking every minute now that the polls weren't as bad as we thought they were. On Tuesday night, we were all like, oh gosh, like we, we've killed the polling industry in this country because it is so far, it's worse than it was four years ago. Like that was the line on late Tuesday night because the problem was because the mail-in ballots were so heavily Democratic that the margin started tightening and getting closer to what we thought it was going to be. Like, you know, like we looked at places like Ohio and it's like, we thought it was going to be three points. It's 10 points. Like what broke? Like something's not right here. But if you count the mail-ins, it's going to get closer and closer and closer. So we can't even make a full assessment now for probably like three months about exactly how, you know, how off we were. So I think we need to always like have a, have a, a bit of caution there. But here's the reality. The polls predicted that the incumbent Republican was going to lose reelection and they were right. Right. So like at the aggregate level, like this was, a, by the way, this is a hard call because to unseat an incumbent is difficult to unseat an incumbent. It, it almost never happens. Like, I mean, it happened when 1992. It hasn't happened since either of us have been allowed to vote. Exactly right. So like to make that call and to be right tells you like, because so here's the alternative. What's the alternative? You guessing? Like if we didn't have polls, what would we do? Like just go talk to my neighbor. He's going to vote for Biden. That's it. You know, like there it's better. It's, it, is it better than nothing? It's a lot better than nothing. But I, I want to make this very clear. Please don't blame Nate Silver and Nate Cohn and, you know, all those people because they have, their models are based on the inputs that they don't control. The polling is what it, the pollsters are the issue. It's not the modelers. The modelers are only as good as the data they have coming in. So garbage in, garbage out. Right, you can write the best darn model that the world's ever seen, but if the if the data coming in is inaccurate, you're going to have an inaccurate prediction on the other side. And honestly, I feel so sorry for those guys because they catch the brunt end of all the anger. And it's like, but I didn't know, you know, like I didn't do this. Like I did the best with what I had. You know what it's like? Here's what being a being a prediction modeler is like. It's like you work for Tesla and you designed a fully autonomous driving car, and they say, okay, go get on the interstate and take your hands off the wheel. Because you got to prove that model out right there. Like you have a reckoning when you get on the interstate. And when those election returns start coming in, you are having a reckoning every minute as those results come in and your model looks worse and worse. So like this is a hard job, but I would say this, we are a lot better off than the alternative, which is like Dewey defeats Truman and all that stuff. You know, we, 
it what it, it is it good? No, it's not good enough. You know, the results are not good enough. I will I will say that. But they're better than than random guessing, which is where we were 75 years ago. And I think we're gonna learn from this too. I think we got to figure out a way to 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 weight Republicans more heavily in our polls. Um, because it seems like they are either un they are they are lying about their vote choice or we're not catching enough Republicans in the general sample. I think, and I've heard a lot of people talk about this, and I think we should start really thinking about how to do, how to contact people differently. Phone calls are not going to work anymore because no one answers their phone, right? I mean, you've got to do like a hundred phone calls to get one response a lot of times. And the online stuff's okay, but I think we have to start reaching out to people like through DMs on Twitter, on Facebook, on on these social media platforms because people will respond to that. I think, and if if the platforms themselves, you know, endorse this and help make this possible, I think that gives more credibility to the whole communication system. And I think more people will respond, which will get us closer to the right answer. We just have to rethink the polling industry altogether, I think, especially as technology changed over the last 20 years. We can't be in the 1998 model in 2020. We've got to, and we've got to validate that too. And here's the problem. We try these new methods. We won't know for sure if we're right for four more years. So you can't just iterate and test every day. You got to work for three years on, you know, a new process and you got to test it out on the fourth year. So we won't know if we, if any of the changes actually work until 2025, essentially. I got one last question for you. We've talked a lot about what happened on Tuesday, but looking forward, I wonder if there's, if there's a, a trend in the, in the world of religion and or politics that you think is underappreciated, under talked about, what's, what's something that you think is coming that'll be different that we need to be, be it in churches or be it just in understanding our, our political system, what, what is something that we need to be preparing for and understanding a change that's coming? I think it's the nuns. I mean, thank you for the segue, by the way, because I have a book coming out in March called The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They're Going. Um, it's coming out on March the 3rd. It's uh, 150 pages, 42 graphs, my favorite kind of mix, more graphs than words. <laughs> and it's really like a handbook. I wrote it for pastors, seminarians, um, ministry students to basically, and actually for everybody, it's not really written for a Christian audience, it's written for a general audience, but kind of a Christian bent on it. It's, uh, I think the nuns are the most important group in America today because they're growing rapidly. They were, you know, they were 5% of the population in 1990, now they're 23%. Actually, some estimates put them up closer to 30% now. I think actually it's probably high 20s is the right answer. So it's 25, 30%. And Generation Z, 40, over 40% of Generation Z has no religious affiliation. So I think the reality is that a third of Americans are going to be nuns in the next 20 years, and it might go up to 40% at some point. You, we have to understand what that means for American society, right? Because the church used to be the center of life for, for everything, right? Social gatherings, you know, weddings, funerals, family, you know, rites of passage, all that kind of stuff. What does the world look like when that is not the center of life for large shares of our population, right? How do we have social gatherings? How do we create social capital, right? So feelings of connectedness between different groups if we never meet together, right? We go more online, less in person. I think this is going to have huge societal impacts. And the other thing that I think about is, People don't realize all the good churches do behind the scenes that no one talks about. The, the soup kitchens, the clothes closets, the food pantries, the prison ministries, all the things that are, that are making society better, you know, less awful. And when those churches close down, who is going to fill the gaps of that? I don't think there's a lot of atheists like organizing now to set up soup kitchens. I wish they would, and I hope they do actually. But reality is that they're a disparate group. They don't meet. 
like churches do to plan, to budget, to do all the things that churches do. I think the reality is that America is going to be a lot worse, you know, in, in that way. So who's going to pick up the social safety net when it disappears from what churches have created? Do you want the government to do it? I know a lot of white evangelicals don't want the government to do it. So like, what's the alternative that just that people fall through the cracks and die of starvation in our country? We need to figure out, like, we really need to think seriously about these problems going forward and all the ripple effects that these nuns are going to have, let alone the, the real estate industry is going to try to be selling, you know, thousands of church buildings across America. Like, what do you do with that? So there's all these implications of the rise of the nuns that we have only begun to think about seriously. And I think, you know, Christians need to understand, I wrote about this in the book, not to plug anymore, but I wrote about this. There are some groups that would listen and would potentially come back to a faith group. And there are some groups that wouldn't. For instance, atheists never come back to faith, like 2% of them do. It's, it's just a waste of time to, to really, you know, I want to go minister to atheists and go on the atheist forums on, on the subreddits and stuff. No, no, do that. There is a group called Nothing in Particular. It's 20% of Americans and a huge chunk of them, actually 20% of them come back to faith over a four-year period of time. And then 20% become atheists or agnostics. So 60% stay the same, 20% become Christians, 20% become atheists. That's the kind of group that you would, that the church needs to target. Not the people who are like, yeah, God's dead. Reading Christopher Hitchens, they're they're that's not what you want. You want the people who fell away from church just because it was easier to not go. Okay, so I think that is that is what I would say to 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 especially Christians is understand your audience and spend the time, energy, money, resources going after the group that you have the most likely chance of success with, and don't just bang your head against the wall and get frustrated. There are people out there, and by the way, 20% of Americans is a lot of people. You know, that's millions of people. It's, you know, you're talking 40 million people. There's 40 million nothing in particular out there. Go find one, talk to them, befriend them, and maybe they come back to, you know, come back to a faith tradition that a lot of them grew up in. So that's, I think, the big story is they're religiously unaffiliated and they're just, they're constantly marching. They're getting larger, 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 larger. They're going to have a bigger and bigger impact on American politics and American society. And we need to figure out what to do with all that. Well, very good. Well, yeah, I didn't realize I set you up so well, but I, I, as you were talking, I, I looked it up and it's already available for pre-order on Amazon and I'm sure elsewhere. The Nuns, uh, and that is, of course, N-O-N-E-S. Yes. We're, we're having a rise of the nun, non-affiliated, not affiliated, not, not a rise of the Catholic nuns, but the, the nuns. And so people can go ahead and uh, look that up and, and pre-order before it comes out in March. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for your time and for helping us uh, unpack some of these, these issues and for all the work that you're doing. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's always my pleasure, man. I appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Ryan and his work at ryanburge.net. That's B-U-R-G-E, ryanburge.net. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook, And head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, especially as you're thinking about end-year giving, we would greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a special offer for you. You can get your first year for half off. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.